Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, November the 5th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, November the 8th, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 81st post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. I want to welcome you to a very special show tonight, the focus of which will be the first of a series of shows entitled Our Addictive Culture, Chemical Use and Misuse and the Magical Host, the Human Brain and Body with special guest host, Patricia Bucko. Enjoy. Okay, welcome Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is your host for Bringing Light into Darkness Monday News and Analysis. My name is Pedro Gatos and today is November 5th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, the 8th of November, 2021. So we are doing something a little different, but really important. I'm really excited about it. And I wanted to first introduce the guest host for tonight, uh, a friend and colleague, Pat Bucko, and she has been interning with this Institute on Addiction, Health, and Social Theory that I'm a part of. And Pat, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, and thank you for all your work you've been doing. Thanks for having me. Briefly, Pat, she graduated from the University of Illinois at Chicago with a Bachelor of Neuroscience degree and minored in philosophy and has many interests in social theory and has been a real blessing to become acquainted with. So I'm going to let you introduce the show, Pat. All right. Well, thanks for all the kind words. And so I'll be hosting today and asking Pedro a few questions about the work that he has been doing for many, many years, which is working on addiction and explaining how addiction works and working with many people that have dealt with addiction. So I'm going to really quickly read a brief summary of Pedro's work. So Pedro is a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin and became a certified alcohol and drug abuse counselor in 1985 and has successfully met relicensure and recertification requirements every two years since to maintain his licensed chemical dependency counselor status, uninterrupted for 36 years. For nearly 20 years, Pedro was a consulting member of the Consulta Exchange Database of the Center for Substance Abuse Treatment of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Pedro is also an educator with an honest and motivational approach. While working full-time for Travis County, he concurrently taught classes for 10 years as an 
adjunct faculty member at Austin Community College, teaching college-level semester-long classes on pharmacology, addiction theory, and personal growth. Over the years, Pedro has facilitated well over 50 professional CEU workshops in the field of addictive studies and the human brain and body health on assessment, counseling, and pharmacology-focused subject matter. One focus has been specific to marijuana, including nationally well-received workshops at the 2013, 2014, and 2016 annual NAADAC National Association of Alcoholism and Drug Abuse Counselors conferences in Atlanta, Seattle, and Minneapolis, respectively. In addition to his workshops, presentations, Pedro was certified in all the state-mandated alcohol and drug AOD curriculums and taught hundreds of state-mandated 12-hour, 15-hour, and 45-hour education and intervention classes, and through this process has personally engaged with tens of thousands of Travis County enrollees. Pedro retired from full-time employment with Travis County Justice System in 2006 after a 24-year long career the last 18 years of which were managerial and clinical supervisory capacity for the county's substance abuse and counseling program. Pedro was the major actor in developing and evolving the AOD assessment protocol and the continuum of care associated with the assessment process. As a result, thousands of AOD offenders, primarily those arrested for DWI, were assessed and recommendations were made to the Travis County judges each year as to what level of education, counseling, and treatment may be appropriate to meet the client's needs and to safeguard public safety. Pedro helped develop and supervise an extraordinary, innovative, and comprehensive cutting-edge substance abuse assessment, counseling, and case management program that was driven by the most current developing science-based findings around the issues of chemical use and misuse. At the same time, he supervises Travis County Criminal Justice System Agency's own curriculum development, which in concert with the state-mandated education, the counseling, treatment options, and 12-step meeting therapeutic options offered privately in the community also completed the continuum of care recommendations that were made to Travis County judges for creative forms of sentencing or pretrial requirements for clients referred. Semi-retired, in 2006, Pedro continues teaching. Pedro is also an author and trainer of what has been proven to be a client-credible science-based eight-hour, three-session cannabis intervention curriculum that began piloting in November 2012 in Travis County and has now successfully graduated some 5,000 or more clients. Pedro is also an inventor. Pedro is the inventor of a patented alcohol and other drug AOD assessment process granted by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and issued in, on April 8, 2003. The invention name is a method of assessing the severity of non-addictive and addictive psychoactive chemical relationships. Pedro founded the Pedro Gatos Institute on Addiction, Health, and Social Theory on April 2, 1998, which features a multidisciplinary approach to health and social theory. Pedro, as we all well know, is also the host for the past 18 years or more of the show, Bringing Light into Darkness. Pedro has also, lastly, facilitated a number of prevention workshops to professionals as well as parents. From 2007 to 2017, he was actively consulting to Lake Travis Independent School District on combining NIDA prevention principles into the preventative strategies that are consistent with the TKF. So that is a quite a long list of achievements. What really struck me was that you started with assessment recommendations and case management, and that ultimately led you to um, patent sub- submission and patent approval by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. I wanted to know a little more about that process and what led you to submit a patent in the first place. Yeah, well, thank you for that 
description and, and it's not to in any way put me in some prime light. But I think this show, Bringing Light into Darkness, has a reputation for bringing very well vetted and researched material to the airwaves by a multitude of very qualified guests. And if I'm going to be the guest and the quote-unquote authority for this evening on a particular issue, we really felt it was important for our audience to know the resume background of the issues you know, we're going to be speaking to tonight. The issue that we really wanted to turn to on this show is a series of shows on, like you say, assessment, on addiction, on alcohol, drug education, on the, the magical host of human brain and body. Just felt like it was important to share that background to let folks know that we don't put over the air information we have not well vetted. The other quick point I wanted to make here was that our intent here is to share with our Bringing Light into Darkness followers and listeners that we have done a couple of shows over the last 18 years on the air that are connected to addiction and substance or chemical use, misuse, health issues. However, our interest here is to pivot to a series of shows we will be producing around a topic we feel touches on one of our society's greatest health issues, namely those around self-medicating and the potential of developing problematic or chemically dependent substance abuse health issues. With that being said, yeah, my career with Travis County, it started being an assessment counselor, and our job was working for a Travis County agency that was responsible for providing recommendations to the judges for people that were arrested for DWI, right? We were not part of probation. We were not part of the prosecuting agencies, you know, the DA's office or the county attorney's office. We were an independent counseling service. Folks would come and we would find out information about their blood alcohol concentration level, could yield some information on tolerance perhaps. But an Mm -hmm. in-depth assessment usually includes multiple screening instruments, which we used because no single instrument does not have its own hidden biases and stuff. And so they would fill out this paperwork and we would get a criminal history printout with them to see what types of other arrests they may have had in the past. And then we would do a psychosocial interview, which means just asking questions. In a number of areas in which the client responded in a qualifying manner. Uh, For instance, yes, I've had blackouts. If so, how frequently or with respect to drinking patterns or if they answered that they did have family history of chemical dependency? To what extent of family history or if drinking has caused problems, what kind of problems, etc. Like any type of health diagnosis, the accuracy is dependent upon an accurate estimation of the signs and symptoms that accompany the health issue being assessed. And uh, based on all that information, the drinking patterns, you know, like if I was doing an assessment on you, Pat, I would ask, what is your preference? Is it beer, wine, or mixed drinks? And, you know, you might say something like beer. And how often? You may say a couple of times a week. And on those occasions, how many beers per setting? Over how many hours? And that was important because even though it sounds pretty innocuous, what that tells you, if I know how much you weigh and I know how many Mm -hmm. beers you have over how many hours, then I can then extrapolate what blood alcohol level you're regularly visiting when you drink. Right. And and certainly someone that has a very high tolerance and is taking in much more would be a more of a red flag, so to speak. But in the assessment process, it evolved into understanding what did science have to say about the criteria that would indicate the indication that someone had a lesser or greater problem than the next person that walked in the door. Eventually, 
we created some decision trees, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, the invention, a method for assessing the severity of non-addictive and addictive psychoactive chemical relationships was simply a number of decision trees, each specific to a particular sign and symptom of significance, such as family history of alcoholism, such as the number of arrests, alcohol-related arrests in the past, such as results from some of the screening tests, that a certain score on a screening test would put you at a certain level that reflected a more unhealthy relationship with alcohol and other drugs in a lower level. Additional signs and symptoms such as blackouts and BAC levels constituted other decision trees. At the end of the day, the decision tree-driven invention would put clients with similar signs and symptom profiles at the same level of dysfunction with the ultimate final decision-making then made by a team of staffing, licensed or otherwise trained employees in the assessment process who could override or generally accept the decision tree-driven recommendation process based on other clinical staffing criteria guidelines. This decision tree-driven assessment process was then interfaced with a continuum of clinical recommendations of education and counseling you could make. And the least of them would be the 12-hour DWI education class, which the state offers. I think as in 1984, everyone was required to take Mm -hmm. that class if they were convicted of a DWI in order to maintain their driver's license. However, if I had a more substantial problem than just being in the wrong place at the wrong time and getting arrested for DWI, an assessment profile that would be defined with additional signs and symptoms revealed in the assessment process, then maybe I would be required to do some intermediate groups, which supplements the Mm -hmm. information in these classes, or maybe the advanced groups, which is a little bit more time and energy for a higher level of involvement in counseling and education. Or eventually they created what was called an intervention program for repeat offenders, which was a more substantial program that lasts some 18 weeks, twice a week for nine weeks type of deal. And then ultimately, if there was a finding that somebody was likely chemically dependent, then education is not going to meet those needs. And that's where treatment-oriented referrals came in, right? And, um, you know, so at the end of the day, through this psychosocial process, as we go through and we review all these screening instruments and ask you about your drinking patterns and if there was any family history of alcoholism in your family, to what extent it was and what was the blood lineage, because that makes a difference as well. If I have family history and you have family history, but my family history is my father and my mother or my sister and my brother, that's direct lineage. Mm-hmm. And if yours is your uncle, your aunt, your cousin, we both have family history, but the science indicates that the blood lineage is much more significant if it's direct family members and such. But things like blackouts, periods of time where you can't remember part of the night before after heavy drinking, if you've had those before, that's not the end of the world necessarily, but that is a red flag. And if you've had Mm -hmm. them frequently, that's very significant too. So all of these things, our assessment counselors were trained to explore to find out exactly the parameters of any qualifying responses. So at the end of the day, a drinking problem is no more or no less than a health problem. So when you go to the doctor and let's say you have a rotator cuff problem or you suspect you do, 
they're going to move your shoulder in a certain way. And if you, if you yell out in pain in a certain, you know, they can identify and say, oh, mm-hmm. this probably is a rotator cuff type of thing. So just like with any disorder, there are signs and symptoms with the drinking. A DWI is a sign or a symptom. In addition to that, there are other signs and symptoms that you would quantify and then you would sit down with the client and explain, look, this is what the signs and symptoms that we found that we think are worthy of you being aware of and the significance of them. And based on that, that's how you would place somebody along a continuum, a chemical use, misuse continuum, if you will, of services based on the quantity of, of signs and symptoms. I hope that's not too confusing. No, no. Yeah, I think addiction is also often comorbid with other um, diseases and disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's also very valuable because it completely changes the structure of your brain. That's so, a great point. If I can just add one thing. One yeah. of the things that very important in the assessment process is to not try to make diagnoses that you're not trained to make, right? Right. So in the mental health and You're right. A number of people, a significant percentage of people that may be chemically dependent may have co-occurring underlying mental health issues, whether there's depression or something else. Those screenings could also be recommended. Right. We don't really feel capable of making those determinations. There's a couple red flags here. We suggest, you know, you go to this, you know, nonprofit or for-profit mental health entity that provides those professional services to get that evaluated. That would be perhaps part of an ongoing counseling regimen. Right, right. Um, So, Pedro, one thing that you mentioned was that you're also an educator on addiction uses an honest and motivational approach, which I think is important because addiction, we're often socialized to view addiction with shame even. But can you explain this approach to us briefly and the ways it highlights um, honesty and motivation? Yeah, I think it's so important that you be authentic when you engage with other people. People can sense that or the absence of that. And an important part of authenticity is admitting to folks those areas you're not well vetted in. Don't pretend to pretend you are vetted in something well if you are not. You can still have an opinion on it, but you owe it to your clients to be honest about your own limitations, especially when it comes to the vast science of pharmacology and neurology and everything in between. And so when I'm talking about a motivational approach, I think it includes authenticity But people become motivated if they feel that they're benefiting from an interaction. Mm -hmm. So I think, I mean, at least for me, the things that really interest me when I was younger, I, I tried some different drugs and that type of thing. And I was wondering, you know, what really goes on that creates the feeling state change that people get from different drugs? When I got into this field, I got really fascinated in that way. And I studied and studied all on pharmacology and neuroscience and but often in a class if I'm doing a class I'll start off the class just by talking about simple fact that we are each of us like a human vessel we're about 70 percent water or fluid I should say and within Mm -hmm. that fluid is a rich biochemistry and I take that occasion to express that As a singular species, the human species, the biochemistry of the 7 billion people or more that live in the world today are essentially almost exactly the same, over 99% the same. But that 1% create differences like blue eyes, brown hair, skin color, 
those types of issues, but that essentially we are all exactly the same, just as our Creator created us, no one better than the other. And so you start using words like biochemistry, and the classes that we have, people come from all different educational backgrounds and such. So I'm very quick to take a word like biology and say, well, you know, you've heard of this word that I learned that if you can just start learning some basic prefixes and suffixes, you can find out and figure out the meanings of a lot of words. And so like biology, Mm -hmm. you know, what does bio, what does that mean? And somebody will say life and I'll say, you're right, life. And, and what does the suffix logi mean? And sometimes they're not too quick to get that, but they do, or, or you just share it. You say, yeah, it's the study of. So what is, what is biology? Somebody will say the study of life. In this way, you teach them that we will not be intimidated by words. All of a sudden, words like geology and neurology and pharmacology become easier to understand, which will be broached later in our discussions in the class. Clients, like everyone else, feel empowered by knowledge. It is a huge motivator. Then when you take a word like biochemistry, right, you say we're two-thirds water, but really we're a rich chemistry. And what does biochemistry mean? And somebody say, well, bio is life and must mean life chemistry, you know, right, that's it. So we have this rich life chemistry inside of us, right? And I'll ask, what's one word that describes all drugs? People will come up with different words, right? And some of them mm-hmm. will be more than one word, like mind-altering, you know? And I'll say, oh, you know, with a hyphen, is that one word? But mm-hmm. but I'll, I'll explain. I'll say, How about uh, antibiotics? You all know what those are, right? You know, when, when people get sick with a bacterial infection, right? Many antibiotics can be specific to a bacterial infection. And when you get those from the doctor, do you call your friends and say, hey, you want some of these? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, and of course not, because they're not mind altering, but they are a drug, right? So that's not what we're looking for. We're going to be studying and looking at mind altering drugs. But my question was, what's one word that describes all drugs and eventually let them know that the, the word is that is that all drugs are chemicals. They have a unique chemical structure that makes it different from every other drug. And when you take that drug, that chemical, and it goes into your body, it changes your biochemistry, right? Just like if we're 70% water or fluid or biochemistry, you put chemistry into chemistry, just like you put sugar into a glass of tea, it changes the flavor of the tea. You know, you're changing the chemistry, that type of thing. And, And I'm also very quick to indicate, look, the body, the human body, it's a beautiful vessel. It's so resilient. There's so much mm-hmm. we do to our body. Our body just naturally can can adapt and rebalance to, to insults, whatever they are. But if and if it's a poison, of course, I can't. My body can't balance that out. But you know, we're talking about these other drugs. But if, if I take a drug long enough and hard enough, my body will have trouble rebalancing. Then I need the drug just to feel normal before I can feel its effect. And that's kind of the basis mm-hmm. of physical dependency. The motivational part, I think, is when you teach people things that they already have experienced and, it, and, it's, and it's interesting to them, that is very motivational. And when you get that type of thing going on, you develop over, you know, these classes are usually three to four to five sessions of three hours each. You develop a rapport, a genuine rapport, and they start trusting your judgment because you're explaining things. You're not just telling them, don't do this or don't do that. You acknowledge that we're all adults and, you know, you're the captain of your own ship and you're going to do whatever you want to do. But here are some information. Hopefully when you're done with this class, you will be an authority 
on a lot of issues that we as a culture don't do a good job of informing our population about before their choices emerge in life. Definitely. Yeah. And speaking to that also, just I think a lot of people start self-medicating because of this like misinformation and lack of information or lack of access to information, lack of access to even doctors and educators. So thank you for, for what you're doing because, yeah, I know a lot of people that if they had that information early on, um, they'd be much better off. Mm-hmm. So I also wanted to mention what the title of this mini-series will be, which is Our Addictive Culture, Chemical Use and Misuse, and the Magical Host, the Human Brain and Body. And I wanted you to speak a little to the title of the series and what it's going to include, because we spoke to your background a little bit, and I just, yeah, want yeah. to introduce that. Well, sure. Well, number one, in my, my own interest and in my own studies is that addiction does not occur in a vacuum, right? It it occurs in a social setting of sorts, no matter what that setting is, a cultural setting, if you will. And, you yeah. know, we talk all the time about how personal responsibility is non-negotiable. And I really believe that. I believe people have to be responsible personally for mm-hmm. the choices they make. And if things go south, that they make amends and that type of thing. But we'll, and in fact, in a class, right, I mean, you know, you have 30 people in a class or 20 people in a class and you're saying, look, all of y'all are here. That's an act of personal responsibility. You know, you, you don't have to be here. You could be paying consequences some other way. I know you're kind of coerced, but at the end of the day, you're showing up on time. You're following the rules of this class and you're going to get a certificate of completion once it's done. That's a form of personal responsibility, right, for whatever brought you to the class. Um, But what's not talked about is social responsibility and social irresponsibility. The term addictive culture can mean so many different things for me. I think, number one, when you live in a market-driven-for-profit economy, right, what drives Mm -hmm. behavior more often than not has to do with the return on investment types of issues and such. So, for instance, let me just give you an example. Approximately... Two-thirds of Americans drink and one-third do not drink, meaning they, they will not have a single drink within a year period or whatever. That's a lot of people that don't drink, by the way, right? Um, but yeah. we're, some of them are in recovery, you know, some of them are in recovery. Some of them, for health reasons, they don't drink. And some of them, they don't like the taste. Some of them, you know, for whatever reasons, they don't drink. But it, when you watch TV, when you watch movies and when you watch uh, shows on television and it celebrates alcohol use all the time, it's almost like everybody drinks. And if you don't drink, right. there's something wrong with you. But more than that, out of the two thirds or so that drink, it's close to about 10% that actually purchase close to half of the alcohol that's sold. Okay. Oh, wow. And, and so when Anheuser-Busch or these companies say no one to say when, do you think they really want people that have a drinking problem to stop drinking? Absolutely not. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a, yeah, that's 50% of their revenue and such. So, yeah. so there are influences that go on all the time. Think about the pharmaceutical companies. It used to be by law you could not advertise prescription drugs on the television. However, with their enormous economic might for many decades now, pharmaceuticals have been advertised. So if you take something like depression, for instance, which is a real disorder, and many people need and do very well with medications for depression. But if you look deeper, you see 
that many people are probably taking antidepressants that really clinically are not in need of such an intervention. But before we further explore this topic, we need to take a quick break. This is bringing light into darkness. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. We'll be back in a flash. Don't touch that dial. 